0: You may be seated. My wife just handed me my watch. I asked her to. Uh, I'm like a swimmer. I try to keep my time down. But as Jordan said, it is uh, Christ the King Sunday, the end of the liturgical year. And we look forward to its re-beginning next Sunday. You know, at least one of my family members needs to know the end of the story before she begins a novel or a TV series. Um, yeah, she will do that. She will actually, you know, before she starts watching it, she'll read the plot, read the, read the spoilers. She needs to know where it's going. If it's a novel, she'll read the last chapter before she begins it. Um, for some of us, we like the uncertainty, the open-endedness of stories, the possibilities, and. That's what keeps us reading. Uh, But for her, um, knowing the end is not a spoiler or a disappointment, but a great encouragement uh, because it's then she knows um, if she wants to read on or to watch on. And you know, today's passages um, in the lectionary do exactly that for us. They tell us the end of the story And they're designed to help us want to go on, to persevere on to the end, which is really not an end, but a new beginning, a new creation, a new king, who it turns out has always been king. How does the world look to you today? from where you sit, as you watch the news, as you think of your children or your grandchildren, as you look at schools and colleges, places I work, how does the world look to you? How's it going? Well, today's passages are meant to encourage us Because I imagine for some of us today, the world doesn't like, look like it's doing so well. The kingdom of God doesn't look very present in our institutions, maybe in our communities, internationally, in our economics, And if so, well, we're kind of akin to the people for whom these passages were written in their places. In all three of these passages, the listeners or readers were in times of great uncertainty, in fact, great danger. The book of Daniel was composed during the rule of um, Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, a Hellenistic or Greek king. His nickname, actually, though, was Epimanes, which means the madman. And during his not long reign, 11 or 12 years, it was said that 80,000 Jews were crucified or put to death. If we move to the book of Revelation, which was probably written under the Emperor Domitian between 81 and 96 AD, well, here too. Domitian's reign was a cruel one, and not a single Christian who was brought before the tribunal would leave either without being put to death or being forced to recant their faith. And of course, in our third passage, also written by John, but set, of course, in the last days of Jesus, here too we know that Jesus himself would be put to death and his disciples would be scattered in fear not long after probably John writing this gospel or maybe before the temple would have been destroyed. So in all three of these passages, the world is not looking so great for those who are listening to these words or reading them. And so they need this preview. They need this vision that we see in Daniel and Revelation. They need to know the end of the story in order to go on. I did a little mashup of the Revelations in Daniel verses, so let me read them to you, because today you may need to hear this too. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples, all nations and peoples of every language, all nations and peoples, of every language, worshiped him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god i am the alpha and the omega who is and who was and who is to come the almighty the almighty It's as if these authors, Daniel and John, are handing these people a viewmaster. Do you remember those? Viewmasters, some of you are old enough, right? There was like little binocular-type things you would put to your... Face and there'd be like a slide wheel in them and you'd hit the lever and it would move from slide to slide, usually kind of, you know, the seven wonders of the world or, the, or travel or uh, various monuments of the world. They actually still sell these. I looked them up. They're, they sell them at Target and Walmart. I can't believe it. In the age of the internet, these things are still somehow going strong. And it's as if John and, and Daniel, uh, the author Daniel is handing these to the people and saying, I know what it looks like now, but hit the, hit the lever. And look at this vision. Look at this vision of what is and will be made manifest. That is what these passages are meant to do for us. To help us see what will become manifest. To switch our literal worldview, view. <laughs> to, slit, to switch the kind of view master and to see this will be the case. That God, Christ, who is king, will be made manifest as king, and every eye will see it. But of course, these people, under Antiochus, under the Roman Empire, um, they want to know, but what do we do now? What do we do now? Do we just wait Until this happens, what do we do in the meantime? Do we try and topple the powers that be, the present kingdom? Well, in our case, that would be hard. Because the kingdom of this world, wow, it's in a million places, isn't it? It's in a thousand tweets. It's on a thousand websites and a thousand videos. It's not in a place or a building, it's in an infinite number of toxic relationships, of exploited people. What do you do in the meantime? As we wait, do we just fiddle until Rome burns? Well, you know, in these passages, there's no direct command to do anything, (laughs) at least in these passages. I mean, this is gonna be completely a work of God. This recreation, this salvation, this restoration of justice is going to completely be God's work in the end. So what do we do? Clearly, violence is out of the question. Because Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. He says, I know how power works in this world. And if this kingdom, if my kingdom were as of this world, we would fight. But that's not how we use power. That's not how change is going to come about in my kingdom. Not in the world of rivalry, jealousy, domination, and what we might call power politics. What then is our role as we wait for God to bring complete restoration and justice? Well, I tell you, we do get a clue in one of our passages. And it's in the passage from Revelation 1, where the letter is dedicated to him who loves us, Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, who has made us to be a kingdom of priests. There it is. What do we do in the meantime? We fulfill the role of priests. Elsewhere, that role is made a little more specific in the New Testament, and I'm thinking here of 1 Peter 2. Verses 4 to 6, where it says, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves congregationally be built into a spiritual house, but then to be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, skipping to verse 9 of 1 Peter 2 you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter identifies two jobs of a priest. One is to present sacrifices, and the other is to point and proclaim the marvelous acts of him who called them out of darkness. Now he's writing primarily to Gentiles, but Gentiles would have been hanging out with the Jews long enough that they would have known about priests and they'd been well acquainted with the Jewish tradition. And the work of priests was various, right? I mean, they did things like pronounce blessings. They would provide vocal and instrumental music for the temple and the worship service. They would repair the grounds. They were kind of like the facility guys, you know, the priests were. Uh, They would deal with the plumbing and everything. Um, uh, They would make sure nothing was desecrating the temple grounds, you know, no dead bodies, you know, things like that. Um, They would blow trumpets. They would inspect diseases. They would go through purification rites ritual washings, and they would also teach the law, though later that was done more by the scribes. But, of course, the most, important, the most important thing they would do is indeed to perform sacrifices, most of them animals, some of them agricultural. And, of course, these would be the protocols by which the Jews would experience God's forgiveness. You know, they'd be spread out all over um, Israel, Uh, hundreds of them, thousands of priests from the tribe of Levi. Um, And they'd be divided up into groups uh, living in various parts of the country. But every group got to come and in a sense kind of, you know, uh, occupy the temple for a week, twice a year. It's like their number would be called and that group of priests would come from the countryside and they would come up to the temple and they would do their thing. They would burn incense. And one of them, drawn by Lot, would get to go into the holy of holies and light the incense I mean that was the big deal and you could only do it once in your life if your number came up again they say no you've already done it (laughs) you get to go in to the temple where God dwells and light the incense so in a few weeks we'll probably be looking at the story of Zechariah as he goes in the temple and he's told uh, that he's going to he and his wife Elizabeth are going to bear a, a son who's going to be called John. Um, that's the moment when Zechariah had his lot called. He got to go into the holy of holies in one time in his life. He's there and suddenly there's this vision that he receives and he comes out literally speechless. Um, Well, that would be the scene, that would be the big deal if you were a priest, to enter into the presence of God, to offer spiritual sacrifices, or to offer sacrifices. Well, what do you do though if you're a priest and the sacrifice is no longer necessary? You see, that's us. Our passage says, in 1 Peter says, you're to offer spiritual sacrifices because, of course, the sacrifice has already been given once and for all. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed for the sins of the world. So what is First Peter talking about? If Revelation says our role as priests and First Peter says we are to present spiritual sacrifices, that this is our role as we wait for God to bring about his kingdom, what is it to present a spiritual sacrifice? Well, again, another part of scripture helps us. Paul writing in Romans 12 verse one says, "'I appeal to you therefore, brethren and sisters, "'by the mercies of God to present your bodies "'as a living sacrifice, "'acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship.'" If you didn't catch it, Paul and Peter said, "'We are the priests, but we're also the sacrifice. (laughs) We are the priest coming to present a spiritual sacrifice, and what we're coming to present is ourself, not a dying sacrifice. We have that in Jesus Christ and a rising one, I would add. But he says, now as a priest, what you offer is your body to God. You are a living sacrifice, which would have been a kind of oxymoron, right? Or oxymoron, as some people say. Uh, two things that don't go together, living and sacrifice, that doesn't go together. All the sacrifices they, they saw enacted both in pagan and Jewish temples were dead, were dying. It says, no, you now as priests offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You're the priest carrying yourself to the altar each day. Sacrifice image is used throughout the New Testament by Paul, who says, "I offer." we offer sacrifices of praise. Uh, or Paul in Philippians 2.17, he says, I, I pour myself out like a drink offering. In Revelation 3, we said our prayers go up like incense to the Lord, as if we're in the Holy of Holies offering prayers. But our chief role in the meantime is that we are priests, offering ourselves each day to God as a living sacrifice. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, Romans 12:1, quote, "So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering." And place it before God as an offering. You know, I I, I try to practice this. I wake up in the morning uh, and I don't want to get out of bed. uh, And that actually works in my favor here. Um, My bed's kind of altar-shaped. Aren't our beds kind of altars? They're kind of, you know, I mean, mine's a little bigger than this, but. And I just lie there. And I, you know, when I kind of come to, right, I, I say, Lord, I present myself to you. This is actually the definition of worship. It is the shortest, the briefest definition of worship in the New Testament. And Paul says, presenting yourself to God is your spiritual act of worship. It need not involve any music, although music is a great help. So I just lie there and say, Lord, I present myself to you as my act of worship. And then sometimes I go through my day because I go through my day anyway when I wake up like, oh, what day is it? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm doing this. I have this meeting, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I just kind of walk through my day, and I just say, oh Lord, I, I uh, present myself to you in this first meeting today that's ahead of me. Oh, and Lord, I actually am gonna love getting to give those people, so thank you. Or actually, no, I don't wanna see those people <laughs> in this meeting. I know what this is gonna be about. Ah, but Lord, I present myself to you for your purposes. And so I kind of go through my day Saying, in a sense, with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any destructive way in me. I present myself as a living sacrifice, acceptable to him. Hoping that, like those who got to go into the Holy of Holies, I will move into each place practicing the presence of God. You see, because that's what the priests most look forward to, going into the Holy of Holies. But guess what? The doors of the temple have been blown off. The whole world is now the temple. And in each place, we get to practice the presence of God. In each place, we get to present ourselves to God. At each place, we get to be living sacrifices. And then the second thing, according to the first Peter passage that we've gone to, that we get to do is to proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Because another job of the priest was indeed to teach and to mediate people to God and God to people. You know, the worldview, if you will, the the viewmaster of the priest (laughs) in one slide is that the whole world will return to God. As we read in our passages, every knee will bow, every eye will see. The whole world is on this loop, having been created by God, and strayed, it is all going to come back to God one way or the other. It is the great return, the great reversal, the great culmination. It will come back to God and as priests, that's how we see it. All these people, all these institutions, all these values, all these mores, all this creation will return to God. It is his, it will come back to him. And so what does the priest do who moves about in the world the priest says how can I help people connect to where it's all going eventually anyway how do I mediate the presence of God to to people how do I help them take the next step in the return to God Paul in Romans 8 tells us all creation is growing it's groaning All creation is groaning for that return, groaning for that restoration, groaning for that recreation. All creation wants it. And you know, people want it, whether they know it or not. Paul says the Spirit has been sent into us that we would cry, Abba, Father. But in one way or another, everyone's crying, Abba, Father. It's like G.K. Chesterton repeatedly said, you know, the man knocking on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. Now, I think he'd be very surprised if God opened the door. But yes, at some point that is true. At some level that is true. Everybody is looking for the why. Everybody is looking for God. So what are the ways we as priests can connect people to God? Well, I would say the first thing we do is we wonder. We wonder, we look around and we wonder, Where is that person on the return to God? We may never know. I sometimes go to this place called Rooster Cafe across from HTC's offices on Bristol. And I'll sit there while I'm waiting for breakfast and uh, I'll see everybody in line, it's a popular morning spot. And I'll just look at people in line and go, I wonder where they are in the return to God. I'll never know, probably in most cases. But this is how a priest looks at the world. Everyone's on a journey. I wonder what's next for this person. I wonder what the next step would be for them. So a priest wonders. And then you know what a priest does is discern. How can I help them? If I come to know where they are on the journey, how can I help them take that next step? That's what a priest does. A priest takes people by the hand and says, hey, let's take the next step toward God. I remember at a graduation dinner I was at for my daughter, uh, the day she graduated from college, we went out with her and one of her friends and their parents to a restaurant in LA. And I was seated next to the father of, of my daughter's friend, And you know how these things go, you break up in little conversations, you know, so he and I are talking and we were talking for a long, like an hour, I mean, just he and me, you know, just kind of a side conversation. Um, He he, he did not seem to identify as a Christian, but we were talking about things that fathers talk about, their children and our concerns for our children and our fears for their future and all these things, even though it's a joyous day, parents can't help it, right? You know, oh my gosh. And then we started talking about, I don't know how we got there, but we started talking about faith. I probably asked him, you know, well, tell me about your upbringing and, because I think it just how came up, you know. And so we just talked about God and faith and where he was at and, you know, we're eating Brussels sprouts, and, you know, but it's just all kind of was flowing naturally. And uh, at the end he says, you know, I don't think I've had a conversation like that for 10 years. Wow. A priest apparently just hadn't come along (laughs) for 10 years. And he was like, so, it's almost like he goes, I can't believe I've been missing out on this conversation. Now, I don't know what happened after that. But he was so grateful that someone wanted to talk about it. I remember I was on a plane and I am not a plane talker, by the way, I get on the plane and I'm like hunkering down Maybe when we begin the descent out of pleasantries, I'll turn to the person because now we only have 20 minutes, right? And like, okay, I'll talk to them and brrr, you know, so I don't commit myself too early. I know it's not very good at all. Um, but I, somehow I got talking to this person next to me early on, you know, on the flight. Um, and it uh, turns out that she had gone to a Christian college. She was probably middle-aged uh and and uh she'd gone to christian college and she was a therapist but it became clear in our conversation that she kind of left that part of her life the christian college part and all things uh, about that behind and we were just talking about therapy i mean i'm married to a therapist and i know a few things because i hang out with psychologists and and i was talking a little bit about with her the kind of work uh, we we i do in spiritual direction and uh and the institute of spiritual formation And we started talking about shame and guilt and how this functioned. We just got into kind of a psychological conversation, but I was also bringing in kind of how my spiritual understanding from the scriptures helped me in in, in talking to the people I talk to whenever I'm in a quasi-therapeutic role. And she, again, she kind of lit up. It's like she was waiting for someone to connect her vocation back to her faith. And she thought it was so interesting. And she took the name of the Institute for Spiritual Information and and the websites from me. and And I just thought, wow, I'm so glad I sat next to her. I'm so glad I got to connect someone to God today. And of course we can even connect one another, those of us who are Christians to God. We can look around and go, I wonder what the next step, or even ask, as Christians, we can just ask each other, what is the next step for you these days? And we minister as priests to one another. Many of us are called in our families to be what I call the DPs, especially at holiday time. That would be the designated prayers. Are you a designated prayer in your family? Yeah. They turn to you because, you know, you're the person that is religious in some way. And they say, would you please say today's blessing? You know, that's a great thing. I mean, if they had the language, they would be saying, essentially, you're the priest here. Would you please pray? That's how we pray. You know, I've been surprised people, not only Christians, of course, accept my invitations to pray when I offer it, which is probably not often enough, but even (laughs) non-believers who probably never been prayed for in their lives or not recently, at least I am so surprised when I say to them, can I pray for you? And I'm like thinking, no, they're not going to say, they say, yes, I can't believe it. They say, yes, you can pray for me. And I say, really? No, I don't say that. I just pray for them wow what a lovely thing what a lovely thing so we get to be priests but you know it doesn't always have to be a talking thing it doesn't always have to be a praying out loud thing because you know what priests actually point to as well they do they point back to the sacrifices but they point back to the sacrifice of Jesus And not just the cross, but also the resurrection. What the priests point to is something that Paul will call in Philippians 3, resurrection power. Resurrection power probably is best described in Philippians 2, where we're told Jesus did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Right, see, in the passages we're reading, the listeners are going to know how... It's all great that God's going to do all this stuff in the end, but how do we have power now? How do we have power now? And, but Jesus says to, to Pilate, um, well, we're not going to fight. We're not going to use the world's weapons. We're not going to regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So in other words, whenever we're insecure, you and me, we want to be gods. We want to be gods. With all the power we imagine comes with that. But no, Jesus' ark is that he emptied himself. I'm reading out from Philippians 2. He took the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what happened? God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sounds a lot like Daniel, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? What we as priests reveal is the partial mystery, the partial mystery that as we love sacrificially, An amazing work is done around us. That this is the way the world changes. And as how we, each time we love another person sacrificially, we become witnesses, which I would say if we had time, the other role we play, we would become witnesses to this extraordinary thing that Paul calls resurrection power. The world did its worst to Jesus and God reversed it. The world is doing its worst against the kingdom of God and has always has. And how do we act? What do we do? We witness to the paschal mystery and it is a mystery how God can take sacrificial, unconditional love and turn the world around and exalt the poor in spirit, for instance, to the highest place. This is what we do while we wait for Christ the King to be manifest in the world. We move about it as priests. And I'll leave you with one last visualization of that. So I went to college, at a school that could not decide what its mascot wanted to be, <laughs> it was at one point the Indians, and they rightly got rid of that uh, because of the stereotypes that had been involved. So, uh, and I arrived at the school the year after they gotten rid of the Indians, and. Uh, and so we went through a period where we did the university didn't know what mascot to have and they would let the student body vote, but it was a clever and snarky student body we were. And we would always vote ridiculous stuff into the place and the administration would always have to veto it, you know. I mean, one night overnight, there's seemed to be all these parking traffic bollards placed around campus. So of course we wanted to be the Stanford bollards and of course veto, you can't be that, you know. Um, and so they eventually decided they would be the Stanford Cardinal which is not a bird, it's a color, the cardinal. And of course, that's what it is today, it's a, it's a, it's a color, which is deeply unsatisfying <laughs> as a mascot. Uh, cardinal stomp on Trojans, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But one clever uh, undergraduate, one day I noticed at the football game, walking up and down the stands, was dressed in full Roman clergy regalia, full pontifical, robes with the, with the nice uh, papal hat, the dome, and he was just walking up and down the stadium, just blessing people. What was he? He was the Stanford Cardinal. It was snarky. It was slightly irreverent, but you know, that always stuck with me. Yes, that's our role in the world. We move among the crowds, blessing people. We are priests in a kingdom that is here and yet not fully here yet. It will be. And so what do we do in the meantime? We move about the world as priests in the temple that is God's, which is this world. May it be so, forever and ever. Amen.